Friday the 6th of May. This is the Climate Alarm Clock. This week's main story is Europe doing enough to accommodate climate refugees. Also coming up in this week's show, we continue our Birdwatch Ireland and Book of Leaves collaborations and we have a special culture feature with Colm O'Regan. Hello and welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock, Ireland's weekly climate news podcast. I'm Dara Wynn. Every week we bring a mixture of climate stories, explainers and interviews. If you like what we do, then please make sure to subscribe and review the podcast wherever you listen. We're changing things up slightly this week. Kira Daly and Anna Pringle aren't here with me today for our usual news roundup. We'll be back to that next week, but today instead we're going to focus more in depth on one climate story. So this week on the Climate Alarm Clock podcast, I'm joined by Shamim Malekmian from the Dublin Enquirer to talk about a story that she published at the end of April around the area of climate change and climate refugees. So Shamim, thanks a million for joining us on the Climate Alarm Clock. Thanks for having me. Can you start off just explaining to our listeners what the term climate refugee means? I suppose you could define climate refugees as people whose house and livelihood has been destroyed by the impact of climate change, what you can describe as the impact of climate change. And that can be extreme floodings that may have ruined somebody's uh, land and somebody's house. That can be earthquakes, that can be, um, I don't know, tsunamis, uh, all sorts of different things that you would associate and we would associate with the impact of climate change due to its extreme nature. So people who are fleeing these conditions because they don't have anywhere else to go who are displaced by these conditions would be described as climate change refugees in, in, in the academic literature, at least anyway, you know. Okay, yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the academic literature because actually lots of countries, including Ireland, don't actually consider people displaced by climate change as refugees. Yeah, that is correct because, um, and it's just, as you said, it's just not Ireland, just a study came out uh, from Sweden and Austria and uh, it's it's said that not one person uh, has been granted refugee status in Sweden um, due to ecological reasons. Um, and there was just one person uh, granted subsidiary protection and this person basically was, it wasn't on climate ground. So, and, and I'll get to the um, distinctions between refugee and subsidiary protection status uh, with you later, but um, but that uh, that one person who had been granted subsidiary protection was because after there was an earthquake and uh, they've been moved uh, to a camp and there was a well-established risk of uh, sexual assault in those camps. Okay, so we're seeing that the criteria for people to be granted protection is really, really strict. And so your article actually looked at two cases brought to Ireland's International Protection Appeals Tribunal where the consequences of climate change were given as a reason for seeking asylum. So can you talk a bit about those cases and those outcomes and the specific Irish examples? Yeah, so, so first of all, I think it's better for me to kind of explain to you um, the differences between refugee status for your listeners and uh, subsidiary protection. Refugee status uh, would be like when you can prove that there is a risk of persecution in your country if you'd be returned back to, to your country of birth. And subsidiary protection is granted to people who can prove that there is a serious risk of harm awaiting them if they're deported back to, to another country. 
and the law actually says what it means to be at risk of serious harm. And that is basically that you would be imposed or you would be subjected to um, degrading treatment and punishment. Um, so, so, and the law obviously doesn't have any kind of room to mention climate change, ecological, natural disasters. So um, when I searched the, the keyword climate change in the IPAT um, database, I realized there was five cases, but only two directly related, as you mentioned, to climate change. And one of them was a case of um, a man from Malawi and this person was studying here as an international student and as he was studying there was a flood in his country that not only destroyed his home and everything his entire village was wiped out basically because of this and the person who was sponsoring his stay in Ireland was actually killed during the floods so uh, so this person obviously seeks asylum and decides to stay here uh, but uh, the case, unfortunately, was completely rejected and um, the, the decision maker, the tribunal member made some remarks about whether or not climate change was real, you know, as, as he was assessing this case. And he said, uh, basically, if I was to give you this based on what the law allows me at the moment, I would believe I would accept that climate change is real. Climate change is man-made and it's done intentionally. So, and he said that he couldn't, it, he could, it would be unlawful for him to accept all these three, you know, even if he would accept climate change Israel, then um, he kind of said it was such a stretch to say some people burning fossil fuels in a country thousands of miles away from Malawi was causing this, you know, whereas obviously it's proven that it is the case, you know, and wealthier countries obviously causing uh, with the CO2 emissions are causing this. But but the third part of it was that he, the tribunal member, found it hard to accept that even if climate change was real and man-made, it was done intentionally. He basically made this argument that it would be more case of a gross recklessness as opposed to intent. So he said, even if you would be returned back to Malawi and you would be at risk of um, degrading treatment and punishment, it would be as a result of gross recklessness, not somebody intentionally, a state or non-state actor intentionally harming you. You know what I'm saying? So, um, and the other part of it was that I suppose the man was making the argument that um, the government of Malawi was not pro um, giving proper kind of accommodation to people who were the victims of floodings and they were in a camp. But um, the, again, the tribunal members said that people or inmates were free to come and go out of these camps. So, uh, and uh, this is something that like um, inadequacy of a state charity, he said, is not basically uh, considered um, co qualified for international protection, you know? So this was the case of the man from Malawi. Yeah, so I think that gives a really clear picture of the inadequacies of our current systems and the impacts that that can then have on an individual case. Uh, can you tell us about the second case then? 
Yeah, the second case was a man from Bangladesh and he was uh, he had like a severe case of diabetes and he had poor eyesight as well. Uh, he had a mother in Bangladesh who was in the same boat, basically um, grappling with diabetes and um, poor eyesight. And the problem was that he was facing that their land was destroyed. So uh, they used to grow crops. But at that moment, they couldn't do it. So they were very, very poor. And um, basically what was happening was that the insulin that the mom had to buy um, was not free for uh, for everybody. So because of the corruption or whatever issues that he's in Bangladesh. So he was working here in Ireland and was sending back money to his mother who was buying this medication. So he was kind of saying that if... If I go back to Bangladesh, well, my mother would go without medication. But um, again, even though it was accepted that their livelihood was destroyed as a result of climate change, it was not accepted that if he would go, be, go back, uh, he, they would be at a serious risk of um, harm, you know. So, and the, that tribunal member made, this, made a comment about if they can't access free insulin, I suppose it's a result of corruption and corruption is a naturally occurring um, phenomenon, I suppose. I think what you were saying there, particularly in the first case, you know, you mentioned that chain of causality and this idea of climate justice is something that I think more and more people are being aware of that the the people who cause climate change the most uh feel the impacts the least and those who have done the least to cause this are feeling the most severe impacts but actually this idea of climate justice we're not actually seeing that reflected in the law or in our systems here at all because these these people and these are just two examples in ireland that are being affected by climate change don't have access to justice don't have access to to asylum in, in this case so what do you think what do you think needs to change how how can we get better at this what needs to change from a legal or a policy or even a practical perspective uh, to ensure that our systems are actually delivering climate justice so uh, if I kind of give you a bit of context, uh, most of uh, laws around refugees and um, as international protection are designed around the Refugee Convention. So it's used as a, some sort of guidelines for domestic um, uh, laws, for refugee laws. Uh, so, so what happens here is that obviously this was drawn up in 1951 and where the climate change wasn't really an issue. I don't think it was even called climate change, uh, you know, and not it wasn't prioritized anyway so, or understood. It was basically, it was as a result of World War II, they had drawn this uh, refugee convention up. And uh, so obviously it doesn't include climate change. And um, the issue is that there is a concern. I, I, one of my interviewees, one of my sources was saying that the, the, the concern is if the countries got together and decided to kind of amend the refugee convention to mention the impact of climate change what would happen it would they might never reach a consensus you know because it's such a i suppose inflammatory topic because um, a lot of people would be afraid that refugees would pour into their countries in the name of like being victims of climate change so that's uh, that's where an issue that's completely i suppose an ecological issue but becomes very politicized you know um and uh, people are being dismissed because purely because political matters um and that's 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 the worry you know that uh, people are not getting the recognition because uh, immigration 
is um, is a very politicized issue, and this is a this is an intersection of politics and environmental issues. You know. Yeah. So what I mean, what can be done, or what what do you think should be done? Well, it's good that you're asking me for solutions because I always do that. Um, yeah, I think what should happen necessarily is some are of this view that within the frame, the current framework of the law, there is still room uh, to to include uh, climate change refugees. For example, uh, there is a clause there um, saying uh, if you are a member of a particular social group, and sometimes the, the refugee convention gives you the power to kind of look, uh, think beyond the box, outside the box, and say. I suppose if you're a victim of climate change, if you are living in in a camp in in not in terrible conditions, then yes, maybe the tribunal member has this um, power to count you as a member of a political, as a particular uh, sorry social group that makes you distinct from the rest of the society, and can actually grant you subsidiary protection. So I think. If, there can be room, you know, uh, in the current legislation, the current framework of the Refugee Convention to, to, to cut people some slack and to kind of accept the, the, the if they accept it, establish the facts of their cases to give them their status. But unfortunately, in one of the cases that I looked at, the man was just completely called an economic um, migrant or refugee by, by International Protection Office. So would so would you say then that it's it's clear that there's kind of things in in practice in in the current system that that can be done so do you think it's a it's a question of maybe more awareness and more knowledge maybe for the decision makers uh, and maybe the wider public on these issues Yeah because I asked the justice department I asked them do you give a special training, for example, to your to to tribunal panel members, legal panel members at IPO or IPAT, uh, or do they have separate guidelines on how to deal with climate refugees? And they just didn't respond to the query. So I am, and I have a source who used to work for the International Protection Office, and he said he'd never come across them, and he said he never got any training or guide. He hasn't any guidelines, and he said to me that. Um, he wouldn't even touch it if if a case came because he said it would have been so difficult to even if a decision maker wanted to give the status, it would have been so difficult to get the international protection officer to accept it, you know, because they go through different routes. So, um, and there are a lot of people who who told me that they 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 believe that if they said something like that to to an IPO officer or IPAD officer, they would basically laugh at them, you know, if they said they're they're climate change refugees. Shamim, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge and insight on this topic with us on the Climate Alarm Clock. Do you have any final remarks before we wrap up? I just like to know. I just like to note that uh, even in 2020 alone, there was over 30 million people displaced as a result of climate change, and I think uh, these numbers should be more than numbers, and we should kind of pay attention to them. You know. Shamim, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge and insight on this topic with us on the Climate Alarm Clock. Do you have any final remarks before we wrap up? 